Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. This morning, I'm here with Rickon Diwan, who is the SVP of marketing at Thimble. Great to have you on the show, Rickon. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me and thanks for having a marketer on the show. I'm really excited. A marketer kind of like me, though, half marketer, half product. And we'll, we'll dig into that. So yeah. like, let's start off by getting a little overview of your background. Yeah. So I've been a career marketer. I studied marketing as undergrad, always had a job in marketing. I think in many ways, my career is a story of marketing in New York and New York City as well. When I started in the 2000s, very much publisher, media, agency side, as tech became a thing in New York, you know, the magnetism of that went over into tech and into startups and have been in startups and different kind of environments ever since then. You know, last startup I was at, Jump was acquired by Uber um, and we were the bike and scooter division of Uber, which is a, a crazy ride and a crazy journey there. And then currently I'm now SVP of marketing, like you said, at Thimble and we're a insure tech kind of a, a sister of fintech, um, which is burgeoning here in New York as well. But yeah, it's been a, a nice, you know, 15 odd year career. So tell me, how did you get into tech to start? Well, I think I was kind of born into it. My father's a computer programmer. So I, I grew up around books about Delphi and Java and C Sharp and, you know, Visual Basic and all those things. I remember the library that we had was very different. The conversations we would have is very different. And so I've always been around computers and anything technical. When I knew marketing was my thing, I just kind of figured I want to do the most creative aspect of business. And there, there was marketing. But the idea of online and digital marketing was huge and, you know, kind of right time, right place to follow that. And so, you know, my first real dabble in it was I interned at Apple when I was in college and, you know, joined everything that was Apple back in the days when Steve Jobs was still CEO and got to see him and in an intimate kind of setting with all of us as interns. And I think I just, you know, I got stuck in the best way possible. And then of all is no matter what company I've been in, you know, kind of thought digital marketing, online marketing is the way that, you know, I want to emphasize and focus on. So that's been it. And then startups, obviously have different industries and many different backgrounds, but tech is kind of throughout the DNA of all of them. So what was it like, you know, let's talk about that internship at Apple a little bit. What was it like jumping into that, you know, a company at the time? Well, you know, now obviously it is known for different things than maybe they were known for then. But what was that experience like with Steve there at Apple and kind of being at at a company where this is your first kind of foray into tech? Yeah, you know, I was pretty naive in a way. I studied marketing, but, you know, just a you know, state college here in, in New Jersey. I used to work in an Apple store. That was like my part-time gig, you know, getting a nice little paycheck to pay off everything college-related. And I thought, well, I got to combine this. I got to take this like Apple retail experience and see if there's marketing corporate opportunities at Apple. And there was literally an internship. It was the first time that department was ever hiring one for global retail marketing at Apple, at a corporate. And so I applied and then the recruiter called me and the hiring manager called me and they literally said, you're the first time ever 
that a retail employee has applied for a corporate job for this. And so they loved it that I had the retail experience and, you know, I got lucky, I guess, in a way that I, I put myself out there. So I flew out to Cupertino, lived there for three months, obviously said yes when they came in and offered the job. And it's super exciting. I mean, in those days, it was 06. So iPhone had not come out yet. It was one year before the release of the iPhone. I used to sell iPods and, you know, iBooks when I was in retail, but we did a lot. And it was very clear though, I think that Apple was on the verge of big things. Every week when you were an intern, week or two weeks, a figure, you know, senior figure from Apple would come and sit with the interns in Cupertino and chat. And so it was like a, an audience of 100, 200 people speaking Steve Jobs one week, Johnny Ive another week, Tim Cook, and you got a ton of exposure. You felt kind of the gravity of it all. And you walked away with a lot of friends and, and network too, because it's just a, a ton of smart people, even as interns there as well. And I still keep in touch with many of them. You know, the only reason I, I think I didn't stay is back in those days, like jobs were available. 2006 was good. 2007, eight kind of obviously the crash happened and you would stick out an internship for much longer. And the full-time opportunity back in New York just happened. And so, you know, I came back to New York and didn't stick around there, but a lot of what I felt like I learned about marketing and tech definitely planted, obviously, at, at Apple. Yeah. So, I mean, you'd be a proponent of the people that are out there listening that are new to product, right? And wanting to get into tech, looking for an internship at one of the larger companies like Apple, where you get exposure to a lot of that, you'd be a, a proponent of them doing that, I imagine. Oh, huge, huge. I mean, there's there's many things I'd be a proponent of. And you know, I have little kids now, and I don't even know what college and internships will look like 20 years from now from them. But, you know, today is get as much exposure, scratch those itches, get out there. Interestingly enough, given that this is a product podcast, um, when I was at Apple and working in the retail department, the project that I was assigned was really interesting in that every store had to book um, or had to coordinate different classes. So, you know, it could be like a class on GarageBand at your local mall, Apple store, or it could be Spike Lee was presenting at the Soho store in New York. But when a store wanted to organize these events, there was no scheduling system. There was kind of no centralized way to get the assets out. So my project was to kind of build that with this in-house product team, like from conception to UX wireframing to actually delivering it. And I just loved that product part of it too, and somehow found it within a marketing org. So you never know what you're going to get. I've had other internships that were terrible and that you would think they would be amazing, but you never know what you're going to get. So I definitely... If you're at the right point in your life and career, get out there and, and take a jump because it's what will help you kind of understand what you like and what you don't like. So let's fast forward now, you know, good ways in the future and talk to me about your time at Foursquare. Yeah, well, Foursquare was pretty developed by that point. You know, they had pioneered the check-in app and were known very much for the check-in app. But when I joined, the the app was definitely a core focus, but really the company was trying to find how do we generate a lot of revenue. In-app revenue, relying on MAUs, et cetera, was not going to cut it to take Foursquare to the next level. But what they realized they were sitting on was a, a ton of location data. And so the business was moving in a direction where they could take all this location intelligence, You know who had visited where. They built some really fascinating tech where you didn't even need to check in, You know, just kind of the signals from our phone you know, and the right amount of access could tell an app where you were and where you'd been. And so we were spinning that off into 
various enterprise products, an SDK, an API, ad tech products that a sales team could then scale as well. Um, and my job was pretty much product marketing, bringing those products to life, everything from sitting with the product team to kind of understand what it does, to naming the product and building kind of the assets that either business development or sales team would take to market. And so I was there for a little over three years and really got a lot of exposure, you know, both to product marketing as a discipline within marketing and then even advertising, just because we were building ad tech products. So to learn about, you know, what probably most of a company's revenue is spent on, how it's done and the pipelines that it's working in was a really great learning experience for me. Now, product marketing, part of the marketing org, part of the product org, I mean, where should it be or does it depend upon the specific type of company? I think it depends the type of company and the stage of company. If you're like a really early and later on in my career, I've gotten much more exposure to series A type startups, you do things differently. And so at that point, it's very product driven. Your designers might be in product, you know, your people might be in product. And so you want to keep them close. So it makes a ton of sense to put it product marketing as a function there. I wouldn't argue with that. But I think as a company matures and gets bigger, you have different audience segments, you have different distribution channels, your sales team needs different things. A big function of marketing is to act as an agency to the rest of the business. And it needs its own copywriters and creative and you know web developers, et cetera. And so I think product marketing does naturally kind of end up in marketing as it evolves because there's many other things that a product team wants to be focused on as well. But clearly it's a bridge between our two teams. So now after Foursquare, it was Jump and Uber. Talk to me about your experience at Jump and then Uber after you guys got acquired. What did you learn there? Yeah. So Jump was an interesting thing. If you're not familiar with Jump, we launched Jump after eight years of doing a bike share product and system. So Bikeshare pretty much was a non-branded advertised sponsorship model. So if you're familiar with like City Bike or Ford Go Bike and SF, two of like the most popular systems, there's companies behind the scenes that are building those bikes, making those apps, operating and managing the day-to-day operations of that. You know, but we're familiar as consumers or as riders with the sponsor. So Jump had been around for eight years following that model, but when they They found the right time and place. They found that they were innovating a product, which was an e-bike, which blew away the competition, just a much better way of getting around the city and more more friendly for more people to get on a bike, right? But they know they have to exert less effort. They had already had a dockless bike, meaning it didn't need stations. It had a built-in lock that could lock to anything. And the fundamentally, the business model is changing where a city was no longer saying, We want a monopoly or we want to permit and allow one player who essentially has a monopoly over bike share. We're going to open this up and allow multiple players to come into our city and compete and provide the best service, the most coverage possible. And that's when we decided, let's take the company that existed, Social Bicycles, for eight years and rebrand it, give it a consumer-facing brand. We can be in multiple cities with the same brand. We don't need sponsors you know, we need to build awareness, affinity, et cetera. And so that's where we launched Jump. I I joined in December. Honestly, I forget what year it is now, um, maybe 2017. Yeah, December 2017, I joined. By January, we rebranded the whole company, launched the bike in two cities in San Francisco and DC. We did a BD relationship with Uber, where the bike showed up in the Uber app in San Francisco. 
And, you know, they felt that it went well enough that within six months, they ended up acquiring our company. And then it's rocket ship. I mean, it was like those soft bank stories of hyper growth, but now with inside Uber, where, you know, we had gone from two cities and there was a 10 to 20 people on the business side of jump at the time to now we're growing to 35 cities. My team grew to 40 people alone in marketing, you know, true global impact, lots of bikes, we introduced scooters, it's hyper growth. So what you learn is extreme flexibility. You have to be extremely nimble and adaptable. You know, I think you learn that at any company um, like Uber as well. I think for me, like as a marketer, what I learned is there's a big gap between how marketers perceive themselves and the rest of the business perceives the impact of marketing. And there's a big challenge we have as marketers to communicate our impact. I think the ultimate, like, we're a victim of this, we're at fault for this because we talk in marketing metrics a lot as marketers. We talk about impressions and click-through rates and CPMs and all these other things that we find extremely fascinating while the business is talking unit economics, utilization, you know, CAC, LTV, et cetera. And I think, you know, there's to keep up with a business that is growing and learning about itself at hyperscale. And to do that, those are the biggest challenges and you get quick you know, and making sure you're sitting at the right table, you're learning as the leader of marketing, and then you're translating that for the rest of your business so that you have impact. And so it was very challenging. And, and ultimately, it kind of, it grew very quickly with Inside Uber, and then it fizzled out very quickly as Uber, you know, after the IPO, some marketing changes, and then they'd finally divested out of bike and scooter completely. And so it was a great, great ride. And you really learned a lot and condensed probably what most startups want to do in their lifetime into two years. And then, you know, we all walked away pretty happy from that though. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You talk about, you know, trying to teach the other parts of your business about the impact of marketing, you know, products had that challenge in the, you know, over the years, it's, I think better now, but it was, it was a challenge early on, you know, justifying, you know, why product managers were necessary. Now it's kind of just accepted but it wasn't always the case where people were like, well, can't engineers just talk to the marketing or salespeople and figure out what to build? And, you know, the importance of the role of product management has changed a lot over the last decade. So yeah, that makes we've sense. gone through the same thing. Yeah, I've never drawn that parallel, but that translation layer that's needed, right? Bringing business down to actual product, down to screens, down to new features. What are we doing? You know, I'm sure that's a big part of the role. And I think marketing has that same responsibility. Yeah, no, and, and and you've spent a lot of time on the on the product marketing side of the house, you know, arguably kind of in between marketing and product, and a lot of time on user experience, you know, which which I see as part of the product org too. You know, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask you anyways. Do you see yourself as a product person or a marketer? Well, I think on paper I'm a marketer, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think it's getting blurry. Like most of my time is working with our developers, designers, and data analysts, which is probably most of what a product person's time is. And I think marketing is getting extremely diversified in all the functions that report into marketing. I oversee our website. So we have web developers, we have UX designers. We need to think about features. We need to think about uptime and speed. We get, you know, our NPS score is a reflection of the website just as much as it is of kind of the logged in experience that someone's going to, you know, get once they become a customer. So I think we operate the same way and then growth, right? I think growth is eating everything at the center of all this. So if my job is looking at a full funnel of conversion, 
then I need to have a really good relationship and I need to be pretty lethal with my product knowledge and language because essentially I'm only as good as the conversion rate. And so I need to know those screens inside and out. I need to know what's happening to those screens. A lot of our discussions now at Thimble is, okay, we're going to launch something new. How do we test and learn this? How do we design the methodology for that? You know, how do we make sure spend is allocated in a way that we get you know, significant results back and, and believable results back or non-believable results. We don't want to rock the boat too much, but we have to still test. So, you know, I think it's getting super blurry as to what is product in and of itself, what is marketing in and of itself, because there are growth product managers sitting within product teams nowadays and sitting in marketing teams. And a lot of the functions we need might be built separately and within each function, but it allows us to kind of know each other's worlds much better in that sense. So yeah, I think I've become a product person over time. And then just individually, like I've learned HTML, CSS, JavaScript, I've dabbled in Angular, you know, just like a product manager would not to be a developer, but to be kind of lethal, right. In those conversations and those meetings. And so, you know, give me Figma and I'll help the UX team around and we have to be that way. And so I think, it's getting excitingly blurry if you're willing to kind of dabble around and, and not stay within a box. Now, how has product-led growth and that whole movement affected that blurriness? I imagine it's increased it. Yeah. I mean, even at Thimble, we call it the marketing site and then like the product site, right? Like our main.com yeah, yeah. is, you know, all the marketing teams and then our subdomain app.thimble.com is all the product teams. So there is like a baton passing moment in the experience. But that funnel, I mean, we're talking referral codes, tag management of attribution of Google and Facebook, because we're pretty much an e-commerce business at this point. And so I don't know if we know the answer, but we have a growth product manager who sits within product team, but actually started within my team and you know, was in the marketer who went there. And I think that's how it should be. If someone said funnel and growth needs to live within marketing, I think that's great too. But if anything, then you just need to build the, the connection. Yeah, so talk with to me a little bit. I mean, let's get into the details here a little bit because it's it's interesting digging into that conversion process, right? Because you might be driving people to a landing page off of an advertisement that's then getting them maybe to sign up for a, a product, right? Yeah. Talk to me about your philosophy on how to manage that process and where the handoff becomes from, you know, like a marketing lead to now being in the product and going in through the API and and how you track that attribution, which has to be a challenge, right? And how you manage that handoff so things are smooth, right? You want to capture as much information about, you know, your potential prospect, but you also don't want to put friction into that process of getting them into a product, right? So tell me about how you guys have thought about that and the challenges you face there. Yeah. Well, would you mind if I explain Thimble? Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's probably yeah. a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. You so, know, talk to, you know, tell the, tell the listeners out there the story absolutely. of Absolutely. Just for context and we can go yeah, into Thimble it more. definitely but, would help. Um, so after Jump and, and Uber, I met these two guys, um, Jay Bregman and Eugene Hertz. They're the co-founders of, of what is now Thimble. It used to be a company called Verify and similar story. I joined and we rebranded it to Thimble. And Thimble is the, we focus on business insurance um, and we're the only company that can provide business insurance for less than a year, basically. And so we can offer business insurance right down to the hour. And you can say, I want an hour a day, a week. Our most popular product is a monthly product. So it's, you know, basically read news at the end of every month. So it's essentially Netflix's business model brought to business insurance. And so 
ultimately what we're doing is we're lowering the barrier of entry that a business owner would face. Our businesses tend to be extremely small. It's a handyman or a general contractor or a photographer or a DJ, you know, normally a solopreneur or a small team. And, you know, one of their biggest overhead costs is insurance. And one of the biggest barriers to entry to getting a real legitimate job is showing a proof of insurance. And so we make that really easy. And that's kind of why I came is just, I love that they fought some hard regulatory battles, you know, early on to build this product. They, you know, literally in every state you have to, to go when it comes to insurance and make your case for how you want to sell it. And then they do it all on a website or in an app. And we're the only company that can sell or that is selling business insurance in an app today on the app store. So what I liked about that as a marketer is the channels feel very like very much like e-commerce. And so in a way, we could be selling any subscription box or service. Um, we could be selling deodorant. And so you know, hopefully that's good context on Thimble. But the challenge with that is that basically you are using digital channels, awareness, other brand channels to drive people into your top of funnel, your site. Your site then needs to convert. We operate very much like an e-commerce business. So then it's really about the cart, right? And the cart experience. And that cart experience is that blurry line of where, where marketing is passing the baton to product, but we're kind of both holding it at the same time. And so the best way that we found at the people level is to create working groups. We literally have a team that's the CRO, conversion rate optimization team, and we allow product people to sit and understand the experiments we're doing on a Google search ad. And the marketers are understanding how we might be changing a button or a word in the funnel itself. And we really need to know all that. If you change the steps of the funnel, we need to let Google know and change all of our events in Google Analytics or on Facebook tags, et cetera. So we can't operate in silos in that kind of intersection here of the product. Um, and then we do the same, obviously, on the website and in the app. So the operation is to create kind of who are your stakeholders and bring them to the team. The reason why a growth product manager makes sense in a product team is because they really run and they operate differently, right? Like they have ways and means to communicate with engineers to get changes done, right? Or with a product analyst to understand like a pre-post impact of a test. And so it's almost like they're sitting in the team that gives them the best operating manual, right? And that's where it makes sense. Whereas the product marketer is going to sit on the marketing side because he or she, they need to know what channels can I go into? What assets do I have at my disposal? How do I get creative from a creative design team versus like a UX team? And so the operating manual for all that exists within marketing. So you know, but these two people, they, they're tied at the hip and we, we have to force them to be tied at the hip through recurring meetings or the same Asana project board. I mean, there's little other ways to operationalize it, but that's really why, or at least what's worked best for us in, in terms of how we operate and go through all that. And then on the attribution side, like you just answer that one. I mean, that person controlling the budget and the channels absolutely needs to know because they need to know if I'm seeing something funky, where did it come from? either good or bad. And also let the team know, hey, I'm, I wasn't planning on spending money to drive traffic here, but if you guys are doing this and that's of importance to the business, I need to go back and have those discussions or think about it and maybe even change how we roll this out. And that's how it should be to make sure that we're, we're pretty well protected and thinking everything through. Now, you have a lot of experience with direct-to-consumer marketing, marketing tactics, 
Talk to me about what SaaS companies can learn from direct-to-consumer marketing, you know, even to the point of B2B SaaS companies. What can they take away from some of the things you've learned on the D2C side? Like, how can it help them? Yeah. Well, I love that you said D2C and B2B because my joke about Thimble is that we're kind of, B, we are B2B because our, our end customer is a business owner, but we are very much lowercase B2B. Like this is the decision maker and the owner. The sales cycle is very yeah. fast. Yeah. There's a lot of urgency. And I think what I'm seeing, and I've I've even had to interview lots of people working at SaaS companies as they apply for jobs at Thimble. And one of the things I'm hearing the most is we're creating like a lightweight version, right? We're creating a self-serve model. And so we could, you could have started with this big B2B, uppercase B2B, right? Enterprise SaaS solution that's very probably account-based marketing, right? And you have sales folks and marketing's role is to get the leads and then the leads pass on to a sales team, you know, and, and their job is to convert. And product is really just to deliver the product. But I think what we're seeing everywhere, whether it's a CRM tool or a payment processor or any of these types of, you know, tech-driven solutions like we're getting now is to create that entry point, right? That is typically more self-serve that therefore you don't want to have large sales teams around. You want it to be a very efficient flow. And then that becomes kind of the gateway into the larger enterprise. And so I think B2B is increasingly targeting the SMB and they're doing so by kind of creating these simpler, not necessarily freemium. These are very profitable parts of their business. You don't have to make this a, a loss lead for you by any means, but I think we're seeing that. And I think because of that, those things require D2C type marketing tactics. You could be on Facebook, you could be on Instagram, you could have billboards, you know, it just changes the tactics. Your brand has to kind of speak differently. Enterprise wants like legitimacy and establishment, a more accessible SaaS product. You can have a little bit more fun. You could talk to somebody like a consumer. You can engage with consumer brands, right? On social, your partnerships might look very different. And so, yeah, I think you're seeing it kind of become seamless on a wider spectrum. Now, the other thing, you know, it's interesting what you're doing at Thimble, where you're kind of, I think your team talks about is appifying a space, right? This idea of taking complicated processes or industries and really disrupting them by turning them into more experiences. And I, I would imagine ideally user-friendly experiences. Talk to me about that idea of like appifying complicated spaces or industries. Yeah, well... It's a really good question. And it's honestly where I have spent kind of my last two jobs. And I spent a career as a marketer learning marketing. And then I think in the last two places, including Thimble, I've learned I really enjoy this space. And the, and the space being, because people ask me like, why are you working in insurance? Like, you know, of all the industries you could have gone into, you went into an insurance and it's not the there's, sexiest industry. There's lots of money in insurance. There though. is lots of money. Every stadium, you know, is Geico Progressive, et cetera, Liberty Mutual. I mean, it feels like every third commercial is for an insurance Absolutely. Company. So yeah. there's a ton of money, but it, it hasn't been known as the most like disruptive space, right? An innovative space. But I think what's happened now is the internet, I'm saying this kind of in a weird way, and there's probably even more modern ways of looking at like how Web3 might change all this, but really what's left is the most regulated challenges, right? And so bike share and transportation is a highly regulated challenge. Uber was known for that, right? Um, 
taking on cities and the TLCs and saying, there's another option, please, you know, let us in and bring that option to customers. But that's really hard. The regulatory battles, no one fought those as well as Uber did. And insurance is highly regulated. And so when you can find a player that's trying to, dare I say, disrupt it, or at least just take on a, a different approach to it, you rub your hands together and you get really excited. And I, the Appify point of it is really, a lot of this is like data entrenched processes that are paper trails and extremely difficult. Every state has different rules. You know, every profession is different pricing. There's risk involved. And so when you just think about all of this as data and schema, and if you can think about it with a product mindset, you can build a more efficient way, at least. It's still probably pretty complicated on the back end, but you can make the front end much more accessible and user-friendly. And so when I met you know, these two product guys, the co-founders taking on a really kind of stale and dirty industry like insurance, I'm being a little bit drastic, but you know, I think that gets really exciting and they're going to bring a new sensibility to all this. And I think there's a ton of other industries you know, look at real estate, you know, Zillow may have kind of failed at it, but iBuying is a thing with Open Door and, you know, others. I think real estate is an untouched industry still um, from tech that needs this. I think education is. I think there's a lot of other things that are really large systemic challenges and in industries essentially, but you're going to see a lot of apps kind of break down bite-sized little solutions and make dents. And then ultimately, I think the whole thing's going to change in a decade or so. And we'll be looking back at the way we use agents and other things in real estate and how schools have changed, obviously with COVID and virtual learning, but we'll, we'll take that and we'll change it. So I think all of these things need technology, app or website or otherwise, I think we have to be agnostic about. But if you just think about them as data uh, that can be improved, forms and fields and functions and that could be improved, then everything becomes kind of an app eventually. Yeah, I think education is going to be interesting too, how that changes. I mean, you know, there's a lot of areas there that I think are ripe for disruption. Yeah, 100%. I, I keep an eye on these things, obviously, just on the side. And then just having kids, you know, every school has different forms and every region has different rules. Uh, it's just a, a wild space that seems ripe for it. And I think, honestly, teachers and everyone else are hungry for it. So I think that sense of opposition might be misplaced because I think they're just begging for the right tools. And so it doesn't have to be high friction. So tell me what other trends, you know, big movements do you see happening in tech these days? Well, other than that, which is a very like top level, you know, these mega solutions like SpaceX or space travel in general, and, you know, we're taking on RNA vaccines, et cetera. These are huge, huge problems. I, I think there's another thing happening kind of at, the starting end of this, or I don't want to say bottom end, but like this more individual point, which is no code. And I think actually product managers and marketers should be extremely excited by this. You know, I, I think what's happening in the no code movement, which is a pretty niche thing, maybe still, but it's evolved a lot over the last 10 years or so. Um, you look at companies like Webflow and Bubble. These aren't just website builders anymore. These are app builders. Now they may not be the most efficient app, right? Like a pure product person or an engineer is going to be like, you would never do that. But getting ideas out into the world, I mean, it's inevitable that this is what I'm about to say. And someone said it 10 years ago and 10 years before that, but it's never been easier, right? To create your idea and put it out in the world. And so, you know, we're not just talking about fashion websites in the sense of like, 
marketing sites, that it's purely just content. We're talking about functional sites. You can build things that, you know, take in fields, take in inputs, manipulate data and spit something back out. And most things kind of start there with data. And so I think that's making it super accessible. And I think we're going to see many niches of products come out of that, targeting passion points that people weren't thinking before, because the intersection of passion and the skill to actually build a product for that passion has been far apart, but now that's getting closer. And so someone with a passion about anything and an idea for how to make that niche better can maybe bring that to life much quicker. And then obviously you see things like seed round funding and other things blowing up these days. So hopefully there's some resources and investment going into these things too, but the tools are just getting much better and accessible for all of us. So Rick, and what's your favorite product? Ever. Could be ever, could be now, could be both, you know, I'm yeah. not really rigid here in the question. Yeah, ever my, probably my Fender Telecaster is my favorite product ever <laughs> um, as a hardware product. I'm very obsessed with Webflow these days. We don't use it at Thimble, but I, I dabble in it and would consider moving. But I think they are doing a, a fantastic job at not just the product, which I just talked about, this kind of no-code movement. But if you look at the content they create about how to use the product, it's extremely well created content. I mean, it is not just educational tutorials, it is entertaining. And that's a SaaS-based product, essentially, because you have to pay a monthly fee for their service. And so I think that's going to be one that's going to make a big dent. I think that's huge. Another hardware one might be Teenage Engineering. If you're in the music space, it's uh, basically a company that makes really innovative synthesizers and speakers and really takes on product design, hardware product design. And I'm not familiar with that one. I'll have to check it out. I, I, check them out. They're super cool. And what I also appreciate with them as a marketer is they're really bold in their marketing, you know, that many other marketers or consumers would maybe find uncomfortable, but they go down and they own it. And um, you have to check them out. And a great name, right? Teenage Engineering. So, yeah, um, no, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm you know, familiar with your guitar, pretend to play myself every once in a while. <laughs> We'll jam. It was supposed to be one. something I was getting, you know, experienced during the pandemic. And I think I ended up just working more, you know, yeah. how we can, it turned out. We can end this podcast with a nice little jam session. Not for me. Definitely not for me. But uh, Webflow is an interesting one, too, because I feel like they're starting to get there. But then, you know, I'm launching a venture studio. And as part of that, I, I dug into like, hey, I'll just build this in Webflow and then realize I'm still not quite enough of a designer to even build the website, right? Like they're still not quite there. Huge. Yeah. And then you look at like, you're right. You, you probably need, it does help if you understand the HTML, CSS, and you can like be a little bit of a Swiss army knife at something like Figma, right? Where you can net out your idea first. But five years ago, I used to have ideas and to bring them to life, I went down this like crazy route of Angular and Node and the mean yeah, stack, yeah. right? And then people have gone to React and et cetera. And it, it kind of seems like there's always a flavor of the decade when it comes to these end stacks. But the fact that five years ago, I had to kind of go really deep and just five years later, there's something like that that's much more accessible. 
I think yeah, no, some, it's it's definitely you can yeah. see how it's getting there. And then at yeah. the same time, you're frustrated by little things like not to pick on Webflow because I do think it's a great product and I recommend it for people to use, but just you know, taking a template and adding a logo to the upper nav, like it's hard. <laughs> it's really difficult to do something you would think is really simple. Like who doesn't yeah. have a logo on their navigation on the top of their website? I know. But I know. they don't make it easy to do that from a template. So I know, you know, things but- like that. You can watch an amazingly entertaining video and hopefully figure it out. Um, <laughs> but obviously, like they they know that, right? Um, that they no, no, they're they getting there. It was yeah. just, I mean, it's gone so far. But then you also figure like that. It's that last mile that gets it over the hill sometimes for people, right? Yeah, and I think you know, there's also like Canva, and you yeah. look at all these companies. It's huge how much huge that funding. company is blown up, right? How valuable they are, how many people are using it, right? And so now, as a marketer, I have to go and think do I need production people, right? Do I need devs or do I build people? Yeah, they're specialists. They know how to use these tools and that there's a curve for sure, but it's a whole different world. And there are, you know, I think that's going to change in the next few years, even more so. So I I think it's exciting, you know, and I, I do have like a thing for SaaS products like Asana or like Coda and, you know, these other notion, et cetera. I think they're doing great things. I don't think all will survive or all will go without like a disruption, but it's really interesting to kind of look at these spaces that are pure like SaaS software driven solutions. Well, Rick, and this has been a blast. You know, one final question, three words to describe yourself. Three words. I appreciate that. It has been a blast. I think curious, I'm endlessly curious and dabbling driven I think you have to be to kind of have the thick skin of a startup to deal with it um, and take the risk in the first place, but also get through all the the ups and downs that come with it. And maybe not work related, uh, like witty. I um, yeah, I have a very dry sense of humor, and sometimes I have to clarify I'm making a joke, even. But yeah, that, yeah. So let's go with that. Curious, driven, and witty. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Eric, so much. Enjoyed it. Yeah.